This episode is sponsored by iStorage. iStorage makes state-of-the-art, ultra-secure, and easy-to-use hardware-encrypted portable storage devices, which is just a fancy way of saying they make the best password-protected hard drives so that you have total security over your data and files. I just unboxed mine, a one terabyte SSD called the Disk Assure M2, and it is flipping awesome. Compact, easy to use, and it gives me total ownership over my digital assets so that I'm not worrying about theft. It's even waterproof. The devices are protected against brute force intrusions. They have independent user and admin pin codes, are password and hardware encrypted, and they work on multiple operating systems without the need for annoying software. They'll work on any device with a USB port. Some of their devices even hold up to 20 terabytes, and if that's not enough, they also have encrypted cloud storage so you can easily manage and share your data securely in the cloud. If you're a business owner, consider iStorage encrypted hard drives to build trust with clients over sensitive information, build your brand reputation, and avoid the heavy expenses involved in security breaches. There's a 30-day evaluation program for organizations and government bodies. Use the code ISPO15, that's ISPO15, for 15% off your order when making a purchase on their website. You can also click the link in the episode description to check out their product line more in-depth. Products are also available on Amazon. I gotta tell you guys, I'm like really jealous that you guys have this relationship where you're both like into the exact same thing. Like, like I have no photographers in my life at all that I know of. So, you know, I have my regular life and then I go on these trips and I go to work, but can't share it with anyone. Wife thinks it's boring. Kids think it's boring. <laughs> I only have one friend who's a photographer. It's, hmm. I'm, I'm really envious that you guys have each other. Yeah. I mean, well, I got to ask you, what's your normal life? You said I have these, this life where I go on vacation and then I have my normal life. Are they drastically different? I mean, just my, I have like my work life where, you know, I go and I do tend to the galleries and plan my trips and whatever else I'm working on photography, mm -hmm. but I don't have any, you know, anyone to really talk to it about. The only thing I can compare it to is I was really into martial arts when the UFC came out in 1993. Oh, nice. I'm fascinated with it. And I've watched every single one up until now. And, but only probably in the last seven, eight years did it become kind of mainstream and more popular. Mm -hmm. So I, with a 20 year stage where I, I couldn't share it with anyone. I was on my own. I remember my wife once woke up and saw me watching it and didn't know what it was. She said, Are you watching gay porn? I'm like, I'm not. But uh, I had no one to share with. And now I finally got my kid to it. I brainwashed him. But I, I need some photographers in my life. Neil, that might have been the best start to an episode ever. Yeah. <laughs> Are you a martial artist yourself? I mean, I'm 50, turning 54 next month. So I'm so now what? So what? a spectator. I become a spectator. You're, but did you partake? Are you yeah, jiu-jitsu, so judo? At the time in 93, I was teaching Kung Fu and self-defense. And then this UFC wow. came, which was you know more at that time kind of advertised as two men enter, one man leaves, fight to the death, karate versus this art. It wasn't mixed martial arts back then. And mm. when Royce Gracie came in who had jiu-jitsu, uh, if you may or may not know. Oh, yeah. And he was tapping out guys twice his size. The guys were tapping out. I didn't even know 
why they were tapping from. So I, I had been into martial arts for so long, but didn't wasn't aware of jujitsu, didn't know what it was, and just became hooked as you know with the sport and love it. And my my son loves it. I think I mentioned last time to you, my son does like an MMA podcast. So, yeah, you mentioned that. Yeah, so uh, I love it, but really now I'm happy because I have friends who are into it. But photography, I got no one. You guys are my closest friends by far. There. Well, we'll chat photography with you. We're going to do that today for an hour at least. Okay, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, what other what other secret? Are there any other secret passions you have? It's always good to have a life outside of photography. You need a break. You know, you need to press the reset and have other things you're interested in. We encourage that a lot on this show. Yeah, I really don't. I mean, I love travel, which is part of the whole photography thing. And really, you know, I got into the photography game kind of late when I was 39. Before that, you know, I was doing a bunch of other kind of odd jobs since university, never really finding what I what I loved. Um, and I never really even traveled before I was uh, 39 and decided to take my first photography trip. And that was the one part I was really dreading was, okay, I got it. I'm in landscape photography. I, I obviously have to leave Toronto and go on some kind of trip. And I was dreading the trip part, and then I fell in love with the whole travel. I'm, I'm so upset that I didn't try something, you know, when I was younger. You know, mm. when I was 19, I don't know about you guys, but at 19, kind of all of 19-year-olds would go travel, backpack Europe, or do some kind of trip. But I was involved. I, I was a counselor. At that point, I was the assistant director of, of a summer camp, and I had always gone to sleepover camp, summer camp, and I could never picture anything better so I just was never willing to travel, always stayed at camp until I graduated university and then, um, you know, went into the real world. So never had that chance to, to travel. And even with the prices right, you know, when they have the showcases and one is travel, one is the car, mm -hmm. I would always look at the car, who wants traveling? And now I'm just addicted, addicted to travel. That COVID, I found that was the hardest thing for me is that I couldn't really travel. What is it about travel that you're addicted to? Further the better. I love just going to um, you know exotic locations that I haven't been to, exploring. I just love everything about it. Is it sort of exciting to cross things off your list? Like, oh, I've been here, I've been there, and and that's rewarding. Or is does the travel to seeing places on its own? That sense of exploration is that what's fulfilling, or is it a hybrid? You know, do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I hear what you're saying. I think it's kind of both. I I had this, um, you know, rare situation. I know. Uh, so, Aaron, you have? Do you have just one son, Aaron, or do you have more kids? Yep. Yep. I have uh, one son. Son and done, as they say. Okay. And Seth, do you have children? I do not at this stage. Okay. So when I got into photography at 39, I had um, at that point I had three young kids. So I wasn't, even though I was into photography and. And I knew I had to go on trips. I was doing maximum two trips a year because I had the young kids. Um, but then I got this really lucky break uh, with Hotel X Toronto where this hoteler was looking for one photographer to do a three-year commission, travel the world, go wherever he wanted. And he was going to fill up the hotel with all of the photos, wow. make every single floor when you go into the corridor would be location themes. So floor five is uh, Banff, floor six is France and, and so on throughout the entire hotel. And it was, you know, once in a lifetime commission, I was lucky enough to get it. So then I was faced with a situation where I had to travel a lot because I had to get 800 photos in three years. And typically when I went on a photo trip, I was happy if I came back with like three or four winners. So now I had to do kind of fast food photography. So 
to just to tie it into your question, I had to really travel a lot and I got into the whole researching locations where I thought I can get, you know, anywhere from 20 to 30 photos or else it, it wasn't going to be worth it for me. So um, I just got addicted to the whole, just sitting in front of a, a computer, Googling beautiful places on the planet, finding a location, researching that location, making an itinerary. I didn't want to ever be gone for more than two weeks and then to go and see all these places I had been looking at on my computer for the past few months researching it, uh, I guess I love that whole thing. Just maybe it's like reading a book and then seeing the movie. It, if I could compare it, it, it was just, mm -hmm. I, I love that whole process and, and doing it alone, which I didn't think I would like, uh, just love going by myself. I've done trips with friends also, and I love that, but there's something about going on this adventure by yourself. It is very true the the ability to kind of just make your own day, right? Yeah, uh, I have. I mean that that hotel gig. I have just have a question: like, how did you hear about that? Apply for it? Get through that? Like, that seems amazing. I literally got an email that said uh, we looked at. I mean, it's all luck, by the way. Just so you know, and I and I think I've even told you before. Like, since I started this photography competition and see all how many crazy talented photographers are are out there. I realized that a lot of it is luck. And I got this lucky break in that I opened my first gallery in Montreal in 2015. And this guy from, from New York, uh, Henry Callen, who owns all these hotels and was building this big project and wanted this big hotel to be a gallery in and itself for one, uh, I guess, for one photographer. He was researching. He was going to go with Peter Lick. And, and, and then he started to research, well, maybe we could find someone in Canada. Let's see if we could find someone local. So he looked up landscape photography, and I guess there aren't a lot of landscape photographers that have their own gallery in, I guess, in Toronto. I think I'm probably the only one. So, and, and there were some articles that had just come out because I had just opened that other gallery. So it was just kind of luck. They, they did like a little simple Google search, saw me that I opened the gallery, and I got an email that just said, we're looking for someone to, you know, I thought it was like a joke or junk mail, but I, I responded. I, came in and then it was i guess between me and peter lick for about a month and then they finally made a decision and they went with me i think because i was probably a lot less expensive and i was local and i guess the best sales pitch i said is they already had the sizes for all the photos and they had a very organized blueprint for every room what they wanted and the sizes so peter lick was going to basically provide from his portfolio but he would have to crop because he didn't have those sizes. So I basically said, look, I'm kind of new to the game. If you're going to give me three years, I'll go out and I'll shoot for those specific sizes. I won't be doing any cropping. I'm going to go with those sizes in mind and I'm going to custom size, you know, shoot for your hotel. And that's what sold them on it. I think. Well, wow, Aaron amazing. has this, Aaron has this great saying that the, the better you get, the luckier you get. Yeah. Like the harder you work, the more luck. Yeah. I believe that too. I don't think I, I don't think that's my saying, but I re well, you say it. Sorry, Aaron's yeah. re saying. Aaron's yeah. quote. Yeah, yeah. No, that's my quote. You can find all my famous quotes <laughs> on the googly googly. I also want to apologize to everyone for just like choking half to death during my question. Um, I'm sure that didn't. I'm sure I got brought you tears with my story. I was pretty impressed that I that I broke through to you. He was holding back tears. He's just yeah. too macho to admit it. No, I'm, I'm I'm drinking athletic greens and it's like this flaked greens, right? It's it's health foods, but it's blended athletic to a powder. Greens. 
So yeah. I always hear that ad on Joe Rogan's podcast, yeah, and I, I need to look it up. Is it good? It's not good. It's, okay. it, it feels good for you because it's like they, they made it taste the right way where it's like, this better be good for me. It's, it's kind of like that. Uh, but it's, it is like a sandy kind of powder in a sense where uh, if you don't mix it well, you'll get these, these missile bombs, these powder bombs that explode <laughs> in your throat. And that just happened as I was asking a question. And it's a delayed response. It's like a, some sort of weapon they have, but it's a delayed response <laughs> that gets stuck and like you can't do anything about it. So I had to mute and like cough my lungs out while you were answering that. Uh, so I apologize. Uh, but I do want to get back to uh, what a move to, I mean, there's, there's gotta be, there's gotta be this sort of, and maybe you can run through this. I don't want to put feelings or emotions into your story, but Opening your own gallery for photography, there's got to be some sort of like, what the hell am I doing? Or like, this this seems scary. This seems risky. Uh, is this going to pay out? Is this going to be worth it? Like, you know, and then that happens. Like, it, again, to the story of you have to take chances for good things to happen. You have to make risk to have reward. Uh, could you speak to that a little bit? Like, was, you know? Yeah. So again, I wish I had a more inspiring story, but I, again, I got a little bit lucky in that, um, I mean, I guess I should just explain from the origin and then I'll, I'll kind of tell you. So I was going on these photo trips by myself for a few years, one or two a year, and then I decided I wanted to go to Africa. Basically, what I was doing is I, I, I had been represented by a local gallery here in Toronto, but it was a prestigious gallery in the Forest Hill Village, and they had a good following. And they had two floors. It was a big gallery, so it could kind of cater to my large photos. And the owner of the gallery was saying, you should go to places where there's a connection to people in Toronto. So my first trip actually was to Israel because I'm Jewish and I felt that that would be kind of cool. I hadn't really seen a lot of landscape photography in Israel. And, and even though most people think of it as just a desert, when I did some research, I saw that it was uh, it had kind of a lot of everything waterfalls, mountains, uh, desert as well, but picturesque. So when I came back, um, I did that and I found there was a good connection with, with the Jewish community. And then I started thinking, okay, well, what other communities can I reach? I did Italy by myself. And then I wanted to go to Africa because we do have a big South African community in Toronto. So, but I was kind of nervous to go to Africa by myself. I want to do South Africa and then I want to do Namibia. And when research Namibia, I don't know if either of you have been, but a high degree of poisonous, venomous snakes, spiders, scorpions, and I'm getting up early by myself. And I was just kind of, I could imagine the email to my wife that your son has, your husband has been stung by some kind of animal. He's now dead. So I wanted someone to go with me, but I couldn't think, again, I, I don't know anyone who, yeah. who fit the bill, but then I. Any doctor it. friends? That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. So right. I actually have my closest <laughs> friend. It's this guy who's in the real estate industry with it, with his brother and his brother, who's always this scary bully. He would beat me up as a child, but now I'm an adult, so I, I think I could contact him. He was always interested in photography, and ever whenever I would see him, he would ask me about it. He also was a pilot, flies his own plane, helicopter, real adventure guy. I just called him up. I said, would you ever go with me? 100%. So he goes on this trip with me, and that's how it all kind of happened where he wanted to now go on all these trips with me. And after about five big trips, he said, or I actually asked him, I said, why don't we just open up a gallery 
in one of your industrial locations. It's really just, you know, you, you, you're putting paint on four walls and we're hanging up photos. But this guy, when he does something, he does it kind of to the extreme. So he opened up this beautiful 5,000 square foot gallery in Montreal. He, he redid everything. It looked phenomenal. But really the risk factor, I guess, for me wasn't there because I am kind of a big chicken. And what you were saying, it, it probably would have hit me a lot harder and I would have been a lot more hesitant if I had to risk my own savings for it. Um, I think maybe in the end I would have done something definitely more small scale, but he took the risk out of it. We basically made a deal where you know he was doing this more for hobby and for fun than his actual business. And the industrial space was sitting empty anyway. So it was kind of a very low risk for me to do it. So that was the first one. But then the one, once I, once I did the big commission with Hotel X Toronto, then the owner of the hotel said, why don't you open up um, a gallery in our lobby? So people who see the photos can basically come down. Uh, they could purchase whatever they want to purchase. And then the more I thought about it, I thought it's a great location because being a five-star hotel, you have kind of the right client. And then also you have new people coming every week. So you don't have to change up the photos all the time, which becomes costly. Uh, mm -hmm. So that was really, I got into it that way. And there was more of a risk with that one, but I had already kind of established myself, had an idea of what sales would be like. So it wasn't so much of a risk. Neil, you yeah, work well, smarter than harder. What's that? You work smarter than harder. Like uh, you work yeah. smart. I like right. that. I mean, it, it getting hooked up with somebody who has the space and who also has a passion for photography. That's a creative, whether it was, you know, it was probably indirect and by accident, but it's creative maneuver. It, it allows you the ability to now hang tons of your artwork in a great, you know, great location as opposed to risking your own funds and livelihood. I think that's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, it was, I, again, all this stuff was lucky. Even when I started doing landscape photography, just for, you know, people, I do get a lot of people who ask me, how do you get started? How do you make a living with it? And I did it, I guess, the best way you can. First of all, landscape photography, it is hard to make a living selling landscape photography. I find it's probably maybe a little bit better now. When I first got into it 13 years ago, uh, photography wasn't seen as much of uh, an art as it is now so it was hard to get into a gallery even to get to represent you they didn't want to represent photographers uh, i think it is better now um but yeah it's uh I, I definitely think i got a lot of uh so sorry what i was saying is at that point when i got into it i already had a side business that um was not it was photography related in the way that i had hired student photographers to go to all the big day camps in Toronto. Um, again, I was reaching back to my passion for camps and photography, but I heard student photographers and they would go to all the camps and take portraits, kind of like the way uh, a lot of photographers do at schools, the way you get your photos taken, but no one was really capturing that camp market. So I did that for 15 years, a company called Reaction Studio that I started, but I had this great manager. He was running it on his, on his own, basically. And I had a lot of free time and that's how I kind of got into, I'm going to go on some trips. I'm going to try this out, see how it works. But I didn't make money. Even when I was represented from a, by a big gallery in Toronto, still wasn't really making money because when you're represented by a gallery, you're getting, if you're lucky, a solo show, but you're getting a solo show once a year. And that's what he was doing. So I was, basically my photos were just on display for a month out of the whole year. So you, you can't really make a living off that. So oh, hmm. I was lucky enough to have my side business and, 
And only after, I'd say, 2015, I think, when I had my own gallery and I was really starting to make an income, then I uh, sold the other business. Wow. So you currently, as of today, you have two galleries, Candy Galleries. It's been a mix up in the amount of galleries that have existed, especially throughout COVID. Run us through that story and then tell us what's involved in managing and running galleries. Just for, I have no idea. I'd like to know. Yeah, it is. First of all, it is like a dream come true when you do open that gallery and you're able to, I mean, even when you see your first, your first photograph printed and mounted professionally and then hung up and, and lit well with track lighting, it's, I, I found it very gratifying. I, I kind of loved it. And um, I still, to this day, anytime I get a really good picture and I'm able to mount it and hang it and light it, I, I love that whole feeling, that whole process. I, I really like the whole process of, of what I do. The, the part that I kind of didn't like a little bit is, is when you get to a point where I did have five galleries, now you're spending a lot of time in business mode. And, um, and, not, and that's kind of taking you away from what you really love to do. And I was able to do less trips because I was running five galleries. So just to tell you, it all kind of happened very quickly. So 2015, my first gallery, 2000, which was in Montreal, 2000, I guess, 18 when the hotel opened up. I opened up a gallery in the lobby of the hotel. Um, then one in Memphis, again, in my partner's building. Um, and that was 2016. Uh, and then 2017 in Yorkdale Mall, which was exciting because you have this real traffic. Uh, it's a mall in Toronto, high-end mall that averages pre-COVID 18,000 people a day. So, and, and kind of the right type of customer also. Um, so that was really exciting to be in, in Yorkdale. I knew that I had a two-year lease. I got a really good price because I was able to kind of sell them on uh, the fact that it would be a draw to people coming to the mall. That's a, another thing where you, you just got to kind of get lucky. Like I, I do a ton of stuff where it's miss. You know, everything in my business is really hit miss and most of it is miss. So Yorkdale really, it's just this mall that I've always admired and I figure I'll, I'll just find out who's, the landlords i found out i wrote literally just wrote them an email my name is neil dankoff so and so told them a little bit about myself love to open a gallery in your mall i got an email the next day saying you know we just had a meeting saying what is the mall missing and we have no art so mm. yes come on in and and right basically on time I, yeah it was just lucky break i did an exhibit in the middle of the mall that people had to kind of walk through and then that was a big hit. So then they let me uh, do a lease with them. They gave me a really good price on the lease. Uh, and I was there for two years. And that just ended uh, a week and a half ago. So that was a really good location. So if I can get back in there, I will. Uh, but I have to wait for a space to open up. So now I'm just in, uh, in Hotel X. And ho you know the hotel business still is kind of a little bit slow. Hotel X, I think, is doing a better than most hotels in the area. It is a phenomenal hotel with a, it's got a sport gym attached to it. It's got a you know, pool on the roof, mm. two movie theaters. So it is this big attraction and it's new. So we are getting traffic, but uh, hopefully it'll pick up to what it was pre-COVID. Weddings as well. I have a friend who just got married there a couple of weeks, weeks ago. Yeah, exactly. It's so I, men I mentioned that I knew you and they said, no way, because they knew exactly who you were, which is kind of kind of cool oh, in a small cool. world. Yeah. Yeah, great. Yeah. So, and, and then my whole thing has been always just try, try anything. Uh, we were approached to do a, um, a pilot for a TV show. 
they wanted to be a serious photography show, but I did not want to do that. I wanted to be more kind of on the, like, I think we had a great cast. So we had my partner who's this kind of fancy billionaire who flies a plane and who's like yells at me, like my wife yells at me. So he was a character. <laughs> and the guy who ran Hotel X and had to approve every single photo wasn't the owner of the hotel. It was a friend of the owner who, his name is Gary Mueller. He's an ex-professional tennis player. He still holds the world record for most aces in a three-set match. It's held for like 20 years. Wow. And this guy is an unbelievable character. Uh, he's this big guy, South African accent, six foot four, hysterical. So the, the, the pilot, which was called Well Hung, so you could tell how serious he was, was <laughs> me, my partner, Derek, and this guy, Gary Mueller, the tennis player. And we, we actually flew to, uh, so Derek flew us in his jet to Oregon and we filmed it in Oregon and it was the most fun ever. Did anything come of it? Absolutely nothing, but it was one of the best oh. experiences. Yeah. Oh man, I want to see this. It was so much fun. I'll send you the link to it. Oh, great. Yeah. So, um, so tried that, tried the, the photography competition, as you know, and we're mm -hmm. still doing that. And one really cool thing that I'm doing now um, is that I made a connection with Hilton Resorts, as you know, in Seychelles, and they have three resorts, and they approached me because they knew about that reaction studio that I just told you about where I had student photographers. And they said, would you ever be able to find us a photographer? We, we want to have a photographer at the resort year-round. So we want someone to come four to six weeks at a time, let the photographer choose. We'll fly them down. They'll stay in a beautiful villa. And basically, we have guests that are always requesting a professional photographer to do a beach shoot to do uh, sunrise shoots, you know, maybe mm -hmm. social media, Instagram shoots. So I got into that. I hired the first photographer. She arrived two days ago. So she's in Seychelles right now. She's filming. She's doing drone work. It's just so exciting to see her. Wow. doing this. Yeah, it's really cool. Are you and allowed to tell us who this person is? Who the photographer is? Yeah. Yeah, it's Sarah Zanini. So if you actually look on my... Uh, Instagram, which is just Neil Dankoff. Now you'll see I reposted one of her posts from uh, Seychelles. And that is a so wicked cool job. And the this is the craziest coincidence. So I hired her before my last competition where you guys were judges. Mm -hmm. Okay, so she's hired. She knows she's going to Seychelles. And if you remember the uh, the trip, the winning grand prize trip is to Hilton Resort in Seychelles, and she won the trip. <laughs> so it's just <laughs> a big coincidence. Wow. Her that incredible photo that she has, that aerial photo yeah. of town uh, in Sicily from above, which yes. looks like a, a man. So she ended up winning. So she got a free week there as a vacation. And then, then she, she was started. already hired. Yeah. So it's so funny. Wow, that's not a coincidence. Yeah. That goes back, Aaron, to your argument that, you know, Neil, we did an episode a few, was it last episode or a couple ago, uh, where we we kind of weighed in on the complaining about how Instagram's changed and all this stuff. And, yeah. you know, I think we both made the argument that the one thing that will always rise to the surface is hard work. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really don't believe that's a coincidence. She's obviously very skilled and deserves to be there. Um, question for you. When you mentioned how things, you know, a lot of the stuff that you, you try to attempt doesn't go well. You, I think you actually said most of it doesn't. Um, right. What's your response to that? How do you, do you, get angry for five minutes and let it go? Does it, does it weigh on you? How do you, how do you accept uh, no's and things that don't work out? What's your thought process? I think it's just a lot of uh, just experience, like experiencing fa failing. And, um, you know, I remember when I was, uh, when I was in Israel, I spoke to someone 
And they do have like the largest amount of successful, I think, startup companies there. And someone, an Israeli soldier was speaking to me and he was telling me why. And he was just saying, because we, we all view failure as, as, as a process. No, no one sees mm. it as negative. Um, and I, I, I always, you know, when I first started after university, I had a sales job and I remember I kept getting like, no, no, I was doing like cold calling and I was so discouraged. I would go home depressed and everything. Um, and then I just realized that it's just, it, it's kind of like a numbers game. So you're going to get a lot of rejection. It's hard to, uh, it's definitely hard to sometimes reach people. You know, I'm trying to a lot of times make a deal with big resorts or uh, big companies or big sponsors, you know, even for the photography competition, just to get in touch. If I wanted to get in touch with Canon or even phase one, which is the camera I use, mm-hmm. it's just so hard to get in touch with the right people unless you have a connection. Mm-hmm. So when you don't have a connection, you just have to keep, uh, you're going to get a lot of rejection. You're going to get a re- rejection in any type of thing where you're trying to start something new. If you're trying to do sales, if you're trying to, you know, put something together, unless you have a good connection, which is hard, obviously you're going to, you just got to get used to the fact that there's going to be a lot of, lot of rejection and a lot of your ideas are going to, are going to fail also. But if long as you get a, a few hits that make it worth your while, and when you get a hit, you know, it, it could last. A number of years so um it's it's worth the rejection it's like uh, like dating you know <laughs> you're trying to meet the right woman or the right person the right mate and it, a lot of times it's gonna you're gonna have to go through a lot of rejection until you you find that soulmate so but once you find that soulmate it's it's worth it i think yeah i think that i think that's a great analogy we, we talk about that often uh, if it, it's a numbers game right like you have to be okay with you can't hide for a month because someone said no and you know let uh, other opportunities go by uh it, i'm laughing over here because if anyone just tuned in uh we started off with you getting caught by your wife for watching quote unquote uh, martial arts, but she asked if it was gay porn. Then right. your your failure of your pilot. Uh, uh, what was it? What was well, the title? Well hung. Yeah, yeah, well, well hung. So yeah. if anyone's just tuning in and hearing these buzzwords, like, ever, calm down, calm down. This is a photography show. Yeah. Everyone, calm down. Uh, no, that that's unbelievable. Um, and by the way, Seth and I are a great tandem. So if you ever need someone to take photographs of anything, you know, let us know. We'll, we'll we'll hop on over there. Uh, we work well together. We just figured that out this past weekend. Um, so yeah, put that in the back of your. Uh, I mean, I would love to just honestly shadow you guys on you know doing any of your like. I'm fascinated with wildlife photography and know nothing about it. Would love to uh, just ever watch you guys work. Yeah, it's a lot of it's a lot of waiting. It's a lot of waiting. It really is. Patience is the key to that game. Um, mm-hmm. I do have a technical question about uh, landscape. So I've run into this with wildlife and I'm sure with landscape, you're printing out these huge things. Yeah. So going into it, knowing I'm going to be printing a very large print of this photo, there has to be some sort of strategy in terms of capturing this large image to the best detail of po- as possible. Are you stitching together images? Is there is there a process to doing it in terms of being able to blow it up? Because I, I've gone to my websites where I try to blow things up, and it's like it's not big enough. It's not. It doesn't have the the around, uh, right amount of megapixels for the thing. Now with wildlife, we do have to crop in usually a, a good amount, so that hurts us. But I'm curious of that process and in going into it prepared for printing huge prints. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I knew I wanted to go big right from the start 13 years ago, but I had at that point, I believe I, I did a little research and I think it was the Canon 5D Mark II was kind of seen as the landscape uh, camera. But even then, like you said, one shot wasn't going to do it. So I, for many, many years, only recently, only the last three years that I stopped doing panoramics, but I was stitching anywhere from four to eight photos together, shooting vertically, um, using a special tripod, nodal ninja, and uh, doing it that way. So four, so, and then I was also doing multiple exposures. So I was um, setting up, finding what I wanted to do. Everything has to be in complete manual if you're going to be doing uh, a panoramic shot. So every single thing in manual from the focus to the, um, to the white balance, uh, everything has to be locked in the same. Mm-hmm. And you can't really use filters either because uh, it, it does alter when you're, when you're uh, going from shot to shot. So mm-hmm. that um, the tripod head that I had, basically, once you figure out what focal length you're going to use, then I had like, I literally had a chart because I can't memorize anything. I had a chart glued to my tripod that would tell me how to adjust my nodal ninja so that once I took a picture and wanted to go to the next one, it would automatically overlap the previous photo by about 30%, which gives you a good even stitch. Um, wow. You know, you have to have enough information for the software to know where to link. So about 30% mm-hmm. is kind of the magic number. It might have changed in the last few years, but that's what it was when I last when I was doing it. Um, and I would, yeah, do anywhere from four to eight. I would do usually one row. Uh, my favorite photo that I've ever taken is called Epic from uh, Guilin. And I wasn't able to get that incredible sky that was in it. So I did do two rows of eight. And that photo I actually printed up 20 feet uh, wide for an exhibit at Yorkdale. Holy. Uh, Holy. Like perfect resolution because I had those 16 photos. Yeah. Um, So then I was basically, I was shooting three different exposures. So one, two, three, rotate the the camera to overlap by 30%, one, two, three, and and do that. And then if I was doing different focal lengths, I, then I would do that whole process again uh, at a different focal length. Mm-hmm. Like I did Times Square uh, eight photos, but I want my goal for Times Square, because it's really all about the signs, was I wanted you to be able to read every single sign, whether it's in the foreground, the midground, the background, every license plate. So that was really tough photo to take because what I didn't realize, I, I actually did it all, thought amazing. I did it in four different focal uh lengths and then went back to the hotel and I forgot that the signs change every 20 seconds. Right. So I have half of one sign, half of another. So I had to go back and then mentally know, okay, now I got to, you know, get that sign, that sign's done and move on to the next. Wow. How long does a process like that take? You know, that's for one photo. So you're yes, sitting there in times square. Like what's that start to finish take? Probably that one was probably about an hour do and i'm doing it over and over and then you you know you get back and you just hopefully have a winner there Mm -hmm. Uh, because it's tough to check especially something like that like you can go back and check in your viewfinder and see if you're in focus but it's tough to check how everything lined up together perfectly and then you're you're also blending the exposures after so you got to go back work on it and because of all the bright lights of the signs uh, and the different exposures with the signs the sky the street that was really a crapshoot, but I just tried so many different things for about an hour, went back, and, and I, I do believe I got only one that worked. But that photo, in the end, um, I sell that for, so I sell that for seventy six ninety five. 
So seven thousand six hundred and ninety-five dollars. It's one hundred and twenty inches by thirty-five inches, so ten feet wide by thirty-five inches high, and an addition of fifty. So I mean, in the end, if you're able to get that winner, and mm-hmm. you're selling fifty copies of a seven thousand dollar photo, it's you know it's really worth it. So yeah. now it's it's gotten to a point where because people are, I guess, are waiting for or, or are eager to see what my next photo is. People who are cl- collectors, like I do, have a good customer base. Now it would make sense for me to, you know, one photo I just flew to Tokyo to take the photo and then flew home. So <laughs> it's worth it if you know you're going to get one good shot. Where I was so used to doing that big commission, where okay, I got to go to a place that I can get twenty to thirty shots. But now it makes sense still, which is more exciting because if I find one great photo that I know will be good, it, it can justify going to take it. Yeah, that's incredible. That's incredible. So back to uh, just this panorama real quick to, to tie it yeah. all together. Ah, tie it all together like a panorama. Um, <laughs> this tripod, is is it a special thing? Can can any tripod just, can you just go across, like here's my scene and I'm just going, I'm just trying to keep let's just say the level on the horizon, whatever it is, like some line, I'm just trying to go across or does that create some weird sphere effect? Do you have to have like a, some sort of tilt or bend or anything? Is there, is there, is there more science to it than just the 30% rule? So there is, and I'm not going to pretend to be any expert in knowing the actual scientific explanation for it, but if there is a foreground or a midground and then there's a background and you're trying to get all that and you're doing a panoramic, then you have to have some kind of nodal equipment piece that's going to take the nodal into consideration because otherwise when you're, you are turning the camera, things will get distorted. If you're just doing a far away scene, mm-hmm. then you can do uh, without that and just you're rotating the camera and you're, you, you can even do it. You don't have to have what I have. You can just mentally see that you're overlapping around 30%. If you want to, if you're doing it by eye, you could be safe and do 50%. And then, mm-hmm. you know, you have enough information for the software to stitch it properly. Gotcha. All right. Well, thank you. That, that, that helps. I always wondered that. And, um, we can't really do so that, that with wildlife too much with megapixels though. So it was the 5d and then, uh, Pentax came out with a good medium format camera. That was really the first affordable medium format because you had, I believe you had Hasselblad and you had phase one, but they're crazy expensive. Uh, people mainly using those for, I think, real, you know, model photo shoots or, or, or photos that are going to end up on a billboard. Uh, definitely not too many um, landscape photographers using those big medium formats. But Pentax came out with one 645D and it was about ten or 11,000. So I bought that and then I bought the, the next model that came out, was it, which was the uh, 645Z. And then finally, at that point, I had about four galleries. I was uh, able to make a decent income, and I just bit the bullet and went for the Phase 1, which is a crazy camera. So that has... Yeah, tell us more about that. What is Phase 1? I've never heard of this until I've been on your website. So Phase 1 is medium format camera. Uh, again, not a lot of... Um, you'll probably only find a handful of landscape photographers that, that use it, maybe more. Um, but... I got it because it just the, the resolution. It was 100 megapixels. Uh, at that point, my Pentax was 50, so doubling the resolution. And I still remember thinking, am I going to get it? Like it came out to it's a crazy amount of money. It was like close to 100 grand to get the camera and the, the lenses and the whole setup. So I remember discussing with my partner. He said, well, you know, go to, go to Vistec, which is the camera store here in Toronto. 
and line up your camera, line up that one, do apples to apples, go back and see if it's really worth it. And I brought it back, looked at the computer, and I was like blown away. I said, yeah, it's, it's worth mm. it. So we, we bought that. So it was 100 megapixel. And then I upgraded right before COVID hit to the 150 megapixels. So now in one photograph, you're getting 150 megapixels Whew. to, I think the most popular size I do is I do a 76 wide by 55 high and reverse if it's a vertical shot. And it just comes out great with one shot. So that's wow. now, now you have more of a, a, of a rectangular than a narrow panoramic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so panoramic is good for above a desk, above, uh, above a bed, above a sofa, but the square one could really stand on its own um, mm-hmm. if, if you have a big white wall. So, um, and, and then I realized this is so much easier taking one photograph. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of great. I'm happy that I started with, I didn't realize, but it really is, besides what you guys do, the most difficult thing I think for photography in landscape photography is if you're doing panoramics you're doing different focal points you're doing different exposures that's really pretty tough because you have to make it all mm-hmm. come together at the end. and of course it has to be a seamless stitch you can't you can the user can't be able to tell the viewer at all that it's been stitched together obviously so it's got to be really perfect and there's many times where you you screw it up and you see the mistake so everything's got to be perfect and you know with instagram as you know all these pictures look phenomenal but when you're growing up when you're blowing up a picture 10 feet wide now you see that the skill has to be perfect because one mm-hmm. setting is off and you're going you're gonna to see the fault of that photo. Let me ask you something. Uh, you just mentioned Instagram. How do you, how do you view social media? What do, you, what do you use it as? What kind of tool? Is it uh, an integral part of your business? How do you view it? I mean, I do try to... I had someone when I started uh, at one point doing it for me and then I looked at it. And my Actually, my sister called me and said, is that you writing the post? I go, I, I don't even look at why. And she goes, because it doesn't seem like, I said, it's not. And then I looked and I, I just put an end to that right away. So I've been doing my own social media since that. Uh, and I, I just use Instagram, a little bit of Facebook. Um, I, I see what you say, what you're saying, that it's becoming more, I guess, kind of like a TikTok craziness. Um, I liked it when it was just showing your photographs. Uh, I do try to post often for me, it is integral because I'm dealing now with a lot of partners and they like the exposure. Everybody kind of likes the exposure. It's a win-win and everyone's trying to get recognized. And there's, you know, there's so many brands out there, so many photographers out there that I think you do have to do your part to kind of stand out a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, do I love it? No, Uh, I kind of wish it wasn't, uh, the social media because I do put a lot of, you know, time into it. And I'm posting all the time and I'm bored as hell myself doing it. So I can only imagine people looking <laughs> at my stuff must be bored, but I, I'm told you got to do it. Interesting. I do, what I'm told. I do what I'm told. I like it. Um, I like you know it. what's I'm- great that may be really good for your viewers because this has been a really good, uh, I started doing this about two years ago and I found this really helpful for anyone out there who is trying to sell their work whether it's wildlife photography and, and it's probably nothing new that I'm telling you, but uh, even today, like I went to, I had a, an office call me and they said, we're looking interested in about six to eight photos. How do we do it? Uh, because it was in Toronto, I went, I went down to the office. I took tape with me. I took measure, uh, measuring tape and green tape, like painter's tape, I guess you call it. And I measured out a bunch of spaces, put 
uh, green tape on the width of what they wanted for sizes, took pictures of that, brought it home, and tomorrow I'll render all their top photos onto it so they see their photos with the accurate size on their wall. But really what I'm saying is I usually don't even go to the place. So most of my sales now come from people who contact me, who see my work either you know, in a gallery or on social right. media or on my website. And I, I, even on my website, it says, send me a photo of the wall in question with a direct straight on angle. They send me their photo. They, sit, they, they put two pieces of tape themselves with the width. And I line up the work that they like onto it. And I, I make so many sales just on that format of never meeting the people, mm. never going to their place, and, and actually ordering the exact size they want. I was kind of nervous doing it the first time, but it, it does work. If they mark off the, the size that they want and I line it up with that, that's the actual size. And I send for printing and, and ship it directly to their house, never meeting them, never seeing them. That's a huge sales tool that, that I think that people should – incorporate into their website and let let their customers know that they can do that i like that because you see you see a lot of stock rooms on people's websites and then you see i don't know a photo of a a deer or something that just does not fit the room right and i like that idea that's a great great uh suggestion i'm gonna veer in a different direction here do you think physical art has a lifespan or do you think people will always hang photos on their wall in the real world i guess this is a a digital art question what do you what's your opinion on digital art and the the whole movement into you know vr and cyberspace maybe i don't know if this is something you you spend a lot of time thinking about but i'm just curious to know if you have any initial thoughts on, on on stuff like that as someone who's constantly printing and putting putting pieces up in people's homes and offices and hotels Mm -hmm. yeah i mean uh, the whole digital thing even the whole NFT thing, I know you guys have more experience. I saw there was a podcast. I want to listen to it on NFTs and a company called me at the beginning of the year. And I signed a contract with them, not even understanding it. I remember saying to them, hold on a second, you're going to sell my NFT digital image for more money than people who could act. They could actually get my photograph delivered and hung on their wall for less. Like it, it made no sense to me at all. <laughs> it doesn't kind of make sense, but I'm fascinated with the whole VR world. You know, as soon as the Oculus came out, I bought a pair. Mm-hmm. I love it. I think I it's- just got one. Did you get it? The Oculus? I uh, just two? got one and I downloaded YouTube VR. Yeah. Right. And I went into YouTube VR and I was swimming with whale sharks in 360. And I was like, holy fuck. As soon How as cool it's so cool. And I'm, it's scary though, because as soon as they can incorporate the sensory elements to it, where you're, where you feel touch and you. Yes feel or you have smell and, and things like that. We're into a black mirror episode. If you watch, if you watch that show, but I love um, black mirror and I put a lot of thought into what you're saying. I want to just tell you also, before I go into that, that I bought an Insta 360 one X two. Are you familiar with that camera? Yes. I was actually meaning to text Aaron this, that we needed to get one as a team, the 360 cam. You got to get it. And so I bought the newer one, the Insta 360 one X two. And I just went on a couple of big photo trips to Indonesia, Komodo National Park, and Seychelles. Took it with me because I'm in heaven when I'm sitting in one of those beaches at sunrise. And just put it in a tripod, filmed mm-hmm. it, and then uploaded. You could upload it to, uh, like you said, a YouTube 360. You can make your own 360. I could put the goggles on, and I am there where I was. So it gives you, you know, any one of your favorite happy places in the world, you could bring home and go into it in VR. Well, and Instagram's heading that way. There's already an Instagram VR beta. Amazing. 
So I mean, I mean my, my get ahead of the curve. Like, if you know you yeah. want to be ahead of the curve, you're talking about people who are interested in reels and things like that. Imagine a 360 immersive reel with a 360 cam. Talk about ahead of your time. It's unreal. But what I'm really kind of fascinated with, I think it was maybe a Joe Rogan episode, but somewhere I heard, you know, where people are talking about, is it possible that we're living in a uh, kind of a, what do they call What was the movie? The a Matrix. Simulation. A simulation. Exactly. Yeah, I think so. More and, more and more every day. Well, here's the thing. So you know that in the next 10, 20 years max, it's going to be as so realistic when you put those goggles on that you will not be able to differentiate. It'll be indistinguishable, for sure. So if that's the case, then, I mean, I don't know what the motivation would be to have us trapped in a VR, but the technology is going to be there that we will not be able to tell the difference. Right. So in a sense, your virtual and digital art will be real in that sense. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I've, I've actually put in, it, it is troubling to think that um, there will be a time where maybe it won't be necessary. I mean, uh, you know, I'm, I've invested a lot of time and effort in building this portfolio of images over the last 13 years. And there will be a time maybe where it's, uh, uh, yeah, art will be uh, obsolete. It'll be all digital. I, I don't know. Mm. You sound like you do a lot of, you know, critical thinking. Do you, um, does that just come throughout your, your waking day, your waking life? Or do you ever sit down deliberately to, you know, be creative and brainstorm ideas? How does that, how does that process work for you? I mean, usually it's, uh, I'll, I'll think of ideas and I do do a lot of, uh, like I have tried a lot of things in my life where I'm kind of just coming up with a thing and it's not something that I've seen before. And that's usually just out of pure fear of failure and panic. Um, I was one of these kids that never did well in school. My father said, you have to get a, a university degree. So I, I did get one, but not great marks. Didn't know what I was going to do where all my friends kind of seemed to be established already. So I was in a position where I was kind of forced to come up with, I didn't really have the degree, you know, a law degree or anything to really do any type of profession. So I had to always think, you know, just think what, what am I going to do? What do I want to do? I was in the pet industry for 15 years just because I love dogs and animals, but really, you know, I, I was wandering around, wandering around aimlessly for quite a while before um, photography really hit me. And, and, and really only, I told you when I was 39 that I started doing it in a way that I loved it, loved waking up, passionate, just excited about my work. It's awesome stuff. Uh, I'm sorry, I was quiet. I had, to, I had to go change my undies after that talk about we're living in a, a virtual world. <laughs> you always keep a spare one on uh, on your desk there, don't you? I didn't, for episodes I didn't like virtually this. poop myself. I actually pooped myself. <laughs> Just thinking about it. And it this, is, I, I did they read something like Tesla has or, or Elon has like a robot coming out in a, in the next year, like literally a robot that you can purchase for your home. Probably. Yeah, it, it's getting there. It's getting there. Neuralink is the thing. Uh, yeah, Neuralink. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a combination, I think, I find of excitement and terror. Because it is kind of like I am fascinated by it, and I love that whole virtual world. I think it's phenomenal, and you know it's going to get so much better, so much quicker. But uh, it is scary. Yeah, I don't like the argument of uh, like, don't worry, everyone. Like the, <laughs> the robots will do all the mundane work, so that we'll have more money that we could pay you just to be creative. 
yeah, humans sure. are intended to do. Yeah, just, we, we just want you to paint and do photography. We'll pay for your stuff because the robots will take care of the rest. I don't like that argument. Yeah. That, that seems fishy. <laughs> That's every horror film, sci-fi film come to life. Yeah, At the same time, sure. I will say this though. Um, I think it's natural, the human brain, the amygdala, to fire up with fear with things that we don't know. I mean, people hear VR and AI and they think we're doomed. It's apocalyptic. Uh, and I don't, I don't necessarily think that's the case. I think there's a lot of programming and innovation that can be done to make sure humans and artificial intelligence will have, you know, similar goals, goal alignment. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't buy into that immediate apocalyptic theme. No, of, of course. It, it just, sometimes things move too fast. I feel like, you know, and it's like, just gotta like un- unpack it a little bit more before it's, yeah, forced down everyone's throats. You know, you know what always um, blows my mind? The first iPhone was two thousand seven. The first yeah. iPhone was two thousand seven. And look at where we are now. We're selling digital art pieces for cryptocurrencies. Neil will, Neil will remember <laughs> this more than more than you, Seth. But I mean, we grew up with the Terminator, right? And that's pretty mm. much yeah. That that's my memory of robots. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't go well. It doesn't go well. Terminator, yeah, yeah, Terminator, that guy that turns the liquid and like morphs to. I saw shapes. a Terminator in a movie theater. I had to sneak in or get fake ID or something. Uh, in Montreal, everyone had fake ID because it was very important to go to the strip clubs at sixteen. <laughs> it's so, so, well hung gay porn strip clubs. We have so many. We're on an absolute tear. <laughs> VR sensational feelings. <laughs> We're gonna to stitch together. Talking about stitching the, together photography. We're gonna stitch together. I need the gladiator. The gladiator soundbite. Are you not entertained? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, you know, I love that whole post-apocalyptic theme. I love all those movies. I love I Am Legend. Um, mm-hmm. Love that whole thing. Don't want to actually live in it, but I, I do love that whole the whole theme and the thought of Last Man on Earth. I don't. Did you ever watch that comedy? Even Last Man on Earth. It was so yeah, fun. great. It was great. Yeah, so great. <laughs> absolutely great yeah and what about you know i just to get off topic for a second i know it's your podcast but i just i was really curious if you guys at all fly drones oh yeah aaron flies drones especially today <laughs> right buddy so neil it's funny you say that <laughs> are you doing it on purpose did you do this on purpose or no have you Unrelated? seen aaron's story today neil no, I swear to God, I, I, <laughs> I just ordered the new drone, so that's why I was asking you. Yeah, uh, new MIDI uh, three. Oh, yeah, it's supposed and to be very good. Got to look on your story. Yeah, no, I, I have the oh, Mavic yeah. Air too, and it's lived. It's lived through some horrible moments. Props out to DJI for just the sturdiness, the robustness of this little this little bee. Uh, I've crashed it a couple of times and, and she still flies. So last night, uh, on a whim, it was, it was like a really humid, cloudy day. And you know, those big thunder clouds and storms, just very aggressive clouds everywhere with sun coming through. And I'm like, I'm going to go down to the river, which in my town is a pretty picturesque scene for a sunset. Uh, and there's usually a sailboat that lives there during the summer. They, they sleep like right in the river in the center. You have, uh, the city of Hartford in the background and uh, the sunsets right behind it. So I'm like, I'm going to go down. I remember taking a shot a few years back and it, it was nice. Uh, but today's it's 
it's looking like a great sunset. So I go down there, I'm flying my drone. I haven't flown it in a while. I'm doing this like circular thing and I slam into a tree by the side of the river. And I have incredible footage. So this is like at the end of the night. I'm have, watching it right now and I can't believe how high that tree must have been. It looks like you're so, so high. Yeah, it came, that tree came out of nowhere. Uh, it was so high. The The storm's breaking, like it's it's half a front is out. It's It's unbelievable conditions. And this drone circles into a tree. I see it. I'm recording at the time. It it shakes and the alarms are going off. And I don't know what I pressed, but it just floats up out of the tree. And I I think out of a hundred times, that's not happening again. You know, like those propellers get hit, that thing's dropping like a rock. Right. And it, it's right below, it was below concrete or or the river. Either way, it would have been bad. Uh, and the thing got it got a little bit dangled, and the the camera got bent to the right for a second just because of the the force of it. Uh, with a restart, it was fine, but I had to fly it home. <laughs> All it was weird flying it back to the car. Like I had to just visually do it, right? Uh, and and got it back, and it's alive. And I wow. have the footage. So that's yeah. the DJI Air Two. That's the one I have. Yeah, that's I have the same one. one. I the Air Two. Yeah, that's supposed to be great. So. The mini one now, I mean, it's 250 grams. So you're, you know, a lot of the problems with me when I go and I travel, um, they don't allow it or whatever. But apparently this is, uh, if it's 250 grams or less, you can really get away. I think it's like uh, they see it as a toy or something or a creation. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so, and it, I mean, they're saying it has 46 megapixels. I think yours does too. Does it not have a mode? That 48. Can, yeah, it's, oh, 48. it's weird though. It's a, it's a, uh, it's one of the trick ones. It's taking right. like four pictures in a row. Right? That's but what I like about the mini that just came out is it does it portrait can camera vertical. Yes. Portrait yeah. mode is, is key, especially for reels and TikTok stuff. It makes a huge difference. Oh, you that, can film in portrait. Yep. Besides <sighs> that, what everybody mentions, but nobody has brought up for some reason is now you can do, cause when you do panoramics, by the way, yep. you always shoot in vertical mode. Right. So right. now you can do an aerial um, vertical because mm-hmm. I, I get these great shots, but the resolution isn't there. But if you do this 48 or 46, and even though it's really not that, but if you do vertical mm-hmm. four or five shots, mm-hmm. uh, I think you could finally get these great aerial um, photos that uh, maybe I could put up in the gallery. And I think that, you know, just from all the photo submissions I got, and so many of them being aerial, aerial is the place to be like for, for unique photographs, these aerial shots over Iceland mm-hmm. where you don't even know what you're looking at and they look completely abstract, but they're a river system with all these uh, incredible colors. I'm excited to, to delve into aerial photography. If I can. It's very true with the panorama and the, the Instagram mind, like you know, the four by five vertical, like that's the, that's the format for Instagram, you know? Right. So uh, with drones, I'm, I'm usually doing that the other way. Uh, so I am doing a vertical panel with multiple shots. Right. Usually three shots to, to put them together. And then if I wanted to print it, at least it's a decent quality. Right. So mm-hmm. just out of curiosity, why did it hit the tree? Doesn't it, it, does it not have sensors on one of the, like on a side or something when you're going sideways? It does. And I don't remember what mode I was in at that time. Oh, right. I might've, I might've been in sport mode, but I don't think I, I do remember the sensors going off. I think it just like, it happened quickly. And if a branch is, it obviously wasn't super thick because I got out of it somehow. Uh, 
so I might have just brushed the very top of the tree as possible. It, um, I have the the whole entire footage of the the entire thing. That's uh, great that you have that. Yeah, so it's interesting. And then I go up, and you can see I'm like turning around, like trying to see what I can see out of the camera because it was bent way to the right at that time, or, or moved way to the right. Um, uh, and I I found a baseball field that was lit up in the in the distance. And I was like, oh, all right, that's my, I know where I am now. Uh, right. But, but yeah, no, it, it went off, I think just last second and then crashed into it. So what can you well, do? I, but I, I I a very funny incident. So when I do visit these resorts, it's kind of this thing where they struggle with because they want to have aerial footage and, and video and pictures, but at the same time, like their guests hate it if they see a, a drone, you know, flowing above there when they're private in bikinis or whatever. Right. So when I was at uh, a resort in the Maldives called Jolie Maldives, and they commissioned me to do photos and the way these over the water bungalows are, it's complete privacy when you're outdoors because they're, they're positioned and, and built in a way that you can have this great view of the ocean, but you cannot see your neighbor on either side. But if you're flying a drone, obviously, so people take advantage of the privacy and a lot of them do not wear clothing. So I was told strictly, look, we want some great shots, but you cannot fly a drone um, in normal hours, so maybe early, early in the morning, and you got to be high enough that they don't hear it, and we don't want any guests to see it. We do not want a guest to see a drone. So I said, okay, no problem. So it was actually the middle of the day, but I was on one side of the beach that was really nobody was there. There were no villas, and I had one of these bottom, um, one of these uh, clear kayaks that are like see-through glass bottom kayaks. And I figure that'll be cool for my Instagram, of course. I have to have the Instagram. I figure I'll just hover the drone, and I'll go in there, and I'll paddle, and that'll be it. So I, I'm paddling with it. And then the, the the kayak, because I was sitting at the stern, I, I went too like low below the water. It started to fill up, and I started sinking. Okay? <laughs> and I'm also holding the remote control for the drone. So I don't know what brain cell I was using, but I shut the remote control off, thinking it would just hover. And put it in my pocket, because I, I, I had like five seconds to get out of the canoe before I was going to be soaked. Put it in my pocket, get out of it, and, and it's all coral, so I'm cutting up my, like all my feet are cut up, bring it back, and then I finally realize, where's the drone? I look, it's, it's nowhere. It's not where it was hovering. It's gone. So I turn my thing back on. There's no connection. I don't know what to do. Finally, I see this guy running full blast at the beach coming towards me and I, I, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm dead. And I'm trapped on like a, an island ready to get off. I'm going to be <laughs> fired. And anyways, the drone for some reason took off, went to the most populated area of the pool and is hovering five feet above the ground. Just with everyone looking at it, all the guests and the oh managers standing there. Yeah. It was terrible. Oh. It was so bad. It's like, it's like the drone drone heard the rules. Yeah, and I was like, no, nah, I'm going to do it my way. See robots, yeah. full circle, back to robots. <laughs> and they're just going to start stop listening to us. Even That's the drones right. are too smart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, for sure. That is amazing. Um, <laughs> Neil, we talked earlier about how networking is so important and how it gets you so far if you do it the right way in your, in your career, whatever that may be. You know, it builds on itself, relationships snowball into other avenues. For example, you know, we met you through 500px. We're here now doing a podcast, talking about shooting together. There's a direct you know, example of how an organic networking relationship occurs. Yeah. What other advice would you give to people if they came and asked you 
to improve their networking capabilities from someone who is clearly well-versed and, and good at it? I mean, I, I really, as I was telling you, I don't even have any photography friends, but I, so as far as networking in that way, I haven't really had to, cause there wasn't really a, a need for me to, but at the same time, I had to learn to network if I wanted, I mean, really where it all started is when I was going on these landscape photography trips with my partner, who I told you was this jet setter. So it was always kind of embarrassing because we'd arrive at a place, he would go check in at the Four Seasons, and I would try to check in at a, you know, anything, a hut made of grass. I'm like in the cheapest place, he's in the most expensive, and it became kind of a running joke. <laughs> at one point, we were visiting places where, where it was just too far apart distance-wise, and he was like, come on, you got to like uh, figure out a way. So I started thinking, all right, how do I get to stay in these resorts? And this is kind of before a lot of the people were doing it. Now you have these quote-unquote influencers that are making these type of deals. But this was before any of that was really happening. So I had to kind of figure out a way that I could stay at these places. So I started pitching. I literally went to the Four Seasons because they had their head office in Toronto. It was founded by a gentleman in Toronto. Um and I got an appointment and I, I went with one of my photographs and I made a whole pitch. Look, I'm going to go to your resort. Um, I'm going to take my pictures. You're going to be able to use all of my digital images for your website. For I started pitching on that, that it would be a collaboration. I started to go kind of like off season where they would just have an empty place. I wanted to make it so it didn't really cost them much. But instead of hiring a professional photographer to come to the resort, they were going to, we were going to be able to make a trade. And that started to work. And then as you get one, you can get more. And then I started to learn other things that I can do as far as um, I found a magazine that was looking for content that of, it was called Luxury Inc. or something. And they were looking for always luxury content. So I approached them and said, well, I'm going to Bora Bora Four Seasons. Do you want to do an article on me where you kind of cover the resort as well? Is that something you'd be interested? They said, yes. Now I go to Four Seasons in Bora Bora and said, I have an article. Do you want to be in the article? It goes out to 30,000 of the top income homes in Toronto. And now everybody's kind of winning. So mm. the, the magazine was a very important feature for me to get access to these resorts. And now basically every time I go on one of these big photo trips, I have usually there's an article that's done on me and the resorts. So that helps. And for the past, I guess, maybe seven, eight years, I haven't paid for any of the uh, places that I stay at. Wow, that's so, awesome. So that ended up being a kind of a, you know, a good way of finding a loophole and how do I keep up with the, the Joneses, which was my partner. Mm. Mm. Yeah. What do you, what do you think, uh, what would you like your, your photos to, what would you like their impact to be? You know, someday when you're no longer here, I mean, we all are no longer to be here at some point. Um, right. I guess, what would you like your photography legacy to be, or just your, your personal one? What do you want um, them to do? Or say, yeah, you know, there, there are photographers that I look up to, like um, Ed Bertinsky. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's out of Toronto, and he actually owns Toronto Image Works, which does all of my printing. So, and I, I've kind of looked up to his work, and he's this guy that really has a mission, has a statement. His photos, he, he basically all of his photos are showing man's impact on um, on the landscapes. Mm -hmm. um, so his stuff is really good and has an environmental edge to it. Mine is really just, I want to try to go somewhere far away and bring that place back. I'm, I'm really just doing pretty pictures, but I want those pictures to be as 
high resolution as possible. I want you to really kind of lose yourself in them. That's why I rarely do mm. um, frames of any kind. I just do a, an edge to edge. I try to do it as, as big as the space will, will allow um, and that you can kind of lose yourself. I mean, even this this office that I went to today, they were just looking at four white walls. They're in cubicles and he wanted to, this is just the CEO. And he just said, I want these employees that are working 10 hour shifts. I want them to feel as if they're in nature. And he just wants to put, uh, you know, eight big nature photos there that people can just enjoy. So I'm happy if people are able to just like my pretty pictures. If there's a connection, like I said, to somewhere maybe they grew up in and it's too mm. far away and visit often. So they bring in a piece of their home, home, um, anything like that. I'm happy to do. I'm trying to build a, uh, you know, because I'll have my dad even say to me, he's more of a businessman. You have enough pictures. Why do you have to keep going? Just sell those pictures. <laughs> I keep telling him. <laughs> I said, First of all, dad, I, I love the process and I want to, I feel like I want to build, just keep building this portfolio. And, and like you said earlier, check off that place has been done and we have one planet and I want to try to, I guess, get the most of it uh, on, with the little time that I have. I, w- I want to try to capture as much as I can and experience as much as I can, because as I told you, like the travel part to me is, is the real passion. I really love it. And I really specifically love researching it, going, seeing it come to life and then doing sunrise. Sunrise is my favorite. I don't know mm-hmm. about you guys. But yeah, I sunrise, it's different. Yeah. Because sunset's beautiful, but there's typically people around for sunset. But sunrise, you're getting like when I do a research uh, a place and find out, you know, first I got to see when is the sunrise sunset for the time that I'm going. I love when it's like five in the morning or four forty five because I know I'm gonna have that whole area to myself, and and that's the best when you have that whole place to yourself and you feel like you're that only person, the only person alive there. It's uh, I just love it. Absolutely. Yeah, that's special. I don't like hiking a new spot for sunrise. Uh, Too so many unknowns? Yeah, it's like dark and you're hiking a trail that's dark and you want to make sure you're going the right way and that whole thing. Um, that's just a, that's a personal thing I need to get over. Uh, but I do, have a, I do have a wrap-up question for you, Neil. Um, yeah. This is, we talked a lot about photography, but this is also the photographer's mindset. So what uh, mindset attribute or something that you consider a mindset strength that you feel like has gotten you through the most of your success in photography and even business and life, what have you, uh, but a mindset trait that you feel like um, is something you hold on to and, you know, uh, gives you a, a bit of an edge. Yeah. Well, I know a lot of people do have that and really, to be honest, I'm kind of naturally a, a lazy guy and I'm not really, unless I, that's why my, my father kind of recognized this early on. And he said, and he was basically an accountant working for the government and he loved photography, loved nature, everything that I kind of loved, but he sat in an office his whole life. And he did say to me, find what you love and thank, you know, happily, luckily he really gave me that great advice. So I don't have to have this incredible mindset because I literally love what I do and all the stuff that I did before and I had a bunch of other jobs, I didn't succeed and I didn't do great because I didn't have that passion. So I, I, I'm in this mm-hmm. situation where because I love it, I don't, I don't have to have any resilience or anything. I, I literally love what I do now. Um, and as far as if there's any advice really just with photography, I found 
you know, I'm not a patient guy, but you, I think you really have to be patient, especially like what you guys do is unreal because you guys can do the whole effort, make the whole hike and still get nothing. You know, I, I could really kind of turn something out of nothing with whatever the weather is. But uh, I mean, uh, it, that's why I have such admiration for what you guys do. Um, wildlife it's just, it's another level of patience. It's unreal. Yeah, more times than not. But it also does give the uh, the kind of random reward casino effect, if you will, where we could go in expecting nothing and get this incredible thing that we weren't even thinking existed, right? Like you do the Google research of this place, of this mountain, let's say you see other people's sunrises, you're, unless you can't get there, you're getting there and you're going to see some resemblance of that, you know? Yeah, uh, we can go out and say, oh, there's a bear in this area. Oh my God, I'd love to get a photo of a bear. And you're out there and you have zero thoughts, zero energy towards a coyote uh, running away with a rabbit. And that happens. And it's it's those magical moments that Seth and I have talked about many times. It's like oh, the, yeah. the unknown reward. It's like if you were going to Zion National Park and then all of a sudden uh, the Seychelles were there. It's like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> where did that come from? <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. That's so funny. Yeah, exactly. And isn't it even with you, like, even if the bear does show up, there's got to be a lot of circumstances that still have to fall in place for you to get that great shot, even if it's yes. present. Yes. Like, I, it's just a whole other skill set. Yeah, I, I always say a, a great wildlife photo takes three attempts. Like, three attempts that go well, right? Like, the first one's nothing. The first one's crap. Like, oh, oh there's a bear in this area. Holy crap. Okay, now where is there a clearing? Where is there not leaves everywhere? Where do I want to set myself? And then there's that sort of, okay, now the light's a little bit different here, or he comes out at this time. And then the third time, maybe you can line it up or at least have like the best chance. And that third time might take eight times, right? It might take 20 times, but at least now you're like, I know where I want to be. I know where the light is. I know the timing. I'm learning every single time. I think that's the thing that people have to understand. Like the whole process is a learning process from the first time you're in an area and you see an animal or you have a sniff that something's there. Then it's a, it's like, I mean, I tell the story with paddleboarding and, and trying to get a kingfisher, a, a little bird the size of a blue jay, for basically an entire summer before I got a photo that I liked. You know, wow. just chasing this bird around hundreds, eight thousands of photos of a kingfisher that's just like, ah, it's too far. It's a little too far. It's a little too blurry. It's a little too busy. And finally figuring out where to be and letting it come to you. But it must be so, like, for me, the biggest reward is when I do get a winner, and and it's just great. You know, you have that for life now. Mm-hmm. When you get a winner, I mean, it's so much more of a trophy also because of all the effort and patience and timing and luck that had to come into it. Yeah, personal, personal, definitely trophy. I don't think people quite understand it. I, I do think it's similar in landscape where you, the luck of terms of, like, the cloud formations and us, the colors and the sunsets mm-hmm. or sunrises, like that part is kind of like I could go up here and put in all this effort, fly, you know, thousands of miles, spend thousands of dollars, and it's it's pouring rain. Uh, you know, in sure I can do the best I can with it. Or you could have these like, you know, you just it's your first hike. 
at sunrise and it's complete magic. Like this is the best sunrise I've ever seen. Like yeah. I think it's it's similar in that aspect where it's like there might be these weather things that you don't know what's going to happen and they might pleasantly surprise you uh, or you might have to come back tomorrow. Exactly. Hey, have you guys done a uh, an African safari? No, no, it's definitely on the list, 100%. We said so, no at the exact same time. Yeah, <laughs> sadly. We so, both said it sadly. No. Next competition, just so you know, <gasps> the grand prize trip is the best one I've had yet. It's, have you heard of Sangita? S-I-N-G-I-T-A? No. So it's the most, I guess, you don't want to use the word luxurious for safari, but it is the most luxurious safari lodges in Africa. They have 12 lodges across uh, several different countries, and they're doing um, a week for two for the winners. Wow. So we can't judge. You we're cannot saying, judge. You we're saying no answer. to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you will not judge. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. It's really yeah, it's um, unreal. Oh, man. Wow. Well, well I Neil. Hope to win that. Yeah. And, hey, Neil, if, if we don't win that, Listen, Seth and I will go and capture the whole trip so you can promote your next trip. I appreciate that. That's very nice of you. <laughs> like video, photography, drone work, like whatever you need. You guys are stand-up guys. We can cook too. We proved that. We found out we can cook. Yeah. Aaron made these amazing fish tacos with like a yeah. mango, uh, mango aioli. aioli with guac. It was to die Ooh. for. Delicious. Was, to was die for, to die for. But Neil, it's been a pleasure, man. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been Neil Dankoff. Everyone, you can find him on Instagram at Neil Dankoff and at candygallery.com. Is that correct? That's correct. And thank you guys so much. It really was a pleasure. Thank you. And chat with us anytime about photography. You opened up the thing saying, you know, I'm jealous of your friendship, but join in. Join in. Done. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Till next time, you guys. Thanks. Bye.